The sermon text for today is Exodus 22:28 through 23:19. Exodus 22:28 through 23:19. The New Testament reading is Romans 9:1 through 8. Uh, this last week, some of uh, our our young people here at Emmaus uh, were uh, in close proximity with with another church, people from another church up at a camp, and we got some really good feedback about um, the Emmaus young people. Um, it made me happy to hear the, the good feedback about them. Uh, some of the adult leaders did uh, go out of their way to point out the benefits of catechizing our children. They saw it firsthand. Um, while it's neat to see that the effects that the catechism has upon uh, the young people, they have a really good grasp of, of, of theology, of, of Christian doctrine. Uh, I want to remind you of that. We're in it every week and every Lord's Day. Sometimes we could lose sight of how beneficial this is. Parents, keep teaching your children the catechism, the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Keep reading them scripture. Also, keep bringing them to church. Bring them to Sunday school with you. Bring them to Sunday school with you. This is the Lord's Day, yes? What else are you doing except giving yourself to the worship of God and to learning about these things? Come to Sunday school and bring your young people with them. They're smart. They can grasp an awful lot. Bring them to worship on the Lord's Day morning. And bring them with you to worship on the Lord's Day afternoon so that they might hear catechetical preaching and learn how to pray uh, within the Christian congregation. Slow down on the Lord's Day and do all of these things. Uh, Time is quickly passing us by. Have you noticed? Before you know it, they'll be getting married and uh, moving out and doing, doing all of that. It goes very quick. I can attest to that. And so let us do a really quality job with our young people and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's my exhortation to you before the sermon itself. Exodus 22, verse 28. We'll read all the way through to 23:19. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, you shall rescue it with him." You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and the righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. 
You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Let us go now to Romans chapter 9 and read verses 1 through 8. Was the text on the screen behind me? As I'm reading, I'm thinking I forgot to prepare that this week. Um, I apologize. You'll have to follow along in your print Bibles, which is better anyways. Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here he is speaking of his Hebrew kinsmen, the Jewish people. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Here in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight through twenty-three nineteen, we find more laws for old covenant Israel. Remember, we are in a kind of a unique portion of the book of Exodus, maybe the, the, the least well-known portion of the book of Exodus, maybe that portion that seems least familiar to us. We have civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel here, and they were given to us in two parts. This set of laws is a little bit different from the previous set. In Exodus 21.1 through 22.27, we encountered civil laws in the form of case laws. There Israel was told what to do in certain cases. If this happens, then do this, was the predominant pattern in that section. But here in this section, we find what are called imperatival laws. Here the law is presented in the form of command. The language used here in this section is, you shall and you shall not. And so the style is different in these two sections. We can see that there is a distinction between them. And I have pointed out to you in the previous sermons that this section is also 
highly structured literarily. Uh, this section, like the previous one, it has the form of a chiasm, meaning that the first part mirrors the last, the second mirrors the second to last part, and so on. And as you know, uh, the previous section, which contained case laws, was a ten-part chiasm with the emphasis placed at the beginning and end of it. This section is a seven-part chiasm. The number is odd, uh, not even. And I think it is right to see that the stress is placed at the center where it is commanded that even personal enemies be treated in a just way. Remember, these are civil laws. How is Israel to function as a society? Uh, in the previous section, the emphasis was placed on the need to, to treat even the weak and vulnerable in society in a just way. Servants were to be treated justly. So too were orphans and widows, the poor and sojourners. That was where the stress was placed in the previous section. Here, at the very center of this chiastic structure, we find that kindness is to be shown even to personal enemies. Even personal enemies are to be treated in a just way. So here now the structure, I don't have it displayed for you, and I apologize for that. Perhaps you can follow along with me mentally as I simply state the structure. First of all, in this section we find that responsibilities to God are stated. Israel is to pay tribute to God from their crops and their herds, even from their, their sons. They are to have no other gods before Him. Next, we have a command that Israel not eat meat torn by wild animals. Israel is consecrated to the Lord. They are to be holy and pure, therefore, even in their eating. They are to trust in the Lord and to not scrounge for their food. In section C, or the third part, justice is to be upheld. That is what is commanded. Favoritism is not to be shown to the poor in a lawsuit. And finally, we come to the center or to the middle point of this section where it is commanded that justice is to be shown even to personal enemies. Kindness is to be shown to them. And then we descend back down the back side of this section, each of these parts corresponding to the previous part. They mirror each other. Uh, justice is to be shown, especially for the poor, so you are to not show preferential treatment to the poor, nor are you, should, or are you to show preferential treatment uh, to the rich in a lawsuit. Uh, the people of Israel are then commanded not to eat sabbatical year produce, so Israel is to be holy unto the Lord in their eating, not eating meat torn by wild animals, and also they are to uh, not eat the Sabbath year produce, they're to leave it for animals. It's to be a year of Sabbath rest. Again, the emphasis is this, God will provide. Trust the Lord in your eating. Do not scrounge for food, trust the Lord. And do not harvest your fields in this seventh year. Let it lay at rest. God will provide for you. And then finally, we return to this emphasis. Israel has certain responsibilities to God, to worship and to serve Him alone, to pay tribute to Him from their crops and herds, and to have no other gods before Him, you see. Uh, this is the, 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 the flow of this passage. Uh, the structure is, is important, for it places stress on certain, certain things. You can see that both of these sections then, the one containing case laws and this one containing imperatival laws, stress that all men and women are to be treated justly, and this includes the weak and vulnerable in society. In other words, it did not matter who the person was, what they looked like, how much power or wealth they possessed, or whether or not you liked them. All were to be treated in a way that was right and just, and both sections containing civil laws have this as their emphasis. Furthermore, 
it seems to me that this second collection of laws, which we are considering today, effectively sent this message to Old Covenant Israel. You are to do all things in society in light of God's existence and of your special covenantal relationship with Him. I don't know if you can see it in the structure of this passage, but here I am drawing your attention to the way in which these laws demand that Israel as a society be ever mindful of Yahweh and of His special sovereignty over them. What did this section begin and end with? What does it begin and end with except for an emphasis upon Israel's obligation to pay tribute to God? Uh, Their obligations to Him as their God are first emphasized and all of what is said concerning the just treatment of people within society is kind of couched within that context. Be just, be upright within society, being mindful of the fact that God is sovereign over you and He has entered into a special covenantal relationship with you. What, in other words, should motivate the just treatment of your neighbor except this, God is supreme over you and God Himself is holy. Be holy as I am holy. I want to explain this by making three brief observations. One, this collection of imperatival laws begins and ends with laws pertaining to Israel's responsibility towards God, as I have just said. Israel was to honor Yahweh in their eating, with their first fruits, with their children, their livestock, their produce, with their time, with their worship. They were to appear before God at set times to pay tribute to Him. They were to keep the weekly Sabbath day holy. And we will look more closely at all of these laws in a moment. For now I'm observing that laws pertaining to Israel's responsibility to God are addressed first and last in this collection. These laws set the tone for the others. They frame the civil laws. And I think this is significant for it is clear that Israel was to uphold justice within society, being ever mindful of God's sovereignty over them. And later, I will argue that this is true for all nations. This is true for all nations. If a society hopes to understand what is just, if a society hopes to enact just laws and to uphold justice, it must be mindful of God and of His moral law, the only true and steadfast standard for morality and justice. Israel was to be mindful of God in all things. They were to honor Him in their eating and with their time and with their worship. And it is within this context that these laws concerning justice are presented to them. Be holy, be just, be morally upright in your interactions with one another because God is sovereign over you. And you, Israel, are in a special covenantal relationship with Him. Two, Israel was reminded in these laws of their special position before God amongst all the nations of the earth. Did you hear this? Israel was reminded in these laws of their special position before God amongst all the nations of the earth. Notice what is said in 2231, You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts, etc. Here I am drawing your attention to the little phrase, You shall be consecrated to me. A consecrated thing is a thing that is set apart as holy or sacred. And here the Lord spoke to Israel as a nation, saying, You shall be consecrated to me. And then particular laws were given. The point is this, Israel was to live being ever mindful of the Lord and of their unique and special relationship 
with him under the Old Covenant. Some of the laws which God gave to Old Covenant Israel helped them to remember their uniqueness and the uniqueness of their covenantal relationship with Yahweh, the one true God, creator of heaven and earth. Can you see this? You, you can see it even now. You'll see it later in the Pentateuch. Uh, Lord willing, we'll come to study more of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses uh, at, at another time. Uh, but you can see that some of the laws given to Old Covenant Israel were, were designed uh, to remind Israel of their uniqueness, of, of their, if I may use this word, their strangeness uh, amongst all the nations of the earth. Uh, you can see it here, for example, in the laws pertaining to dietary restrictions and the laws pertaining to the festivals they were to observe. Uh, these things were to be observed as a kind of reminder of what God had done for Israel in the past to redeem them from Egypt and to enter into this unique and peculiar covenant with them. Uh, three, a third observation, a third general observation by way of introduction. In this section, the Lord reminds Israel of His sovereignty over them and of their accountability to Him. Look at 23.7 where the Lord says, Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. What is God saying here to Israel as a society except this, I'm watching you. I'm sovereign over you and I will, I will hold you accountable. You may pervert justice in your society. You may go in this wicked way, but I will see it and I will not acquit the wicked. I will hold you accountable. This theme of sovereignty and accountability is also present in 23, 14 through 15, where the Lord says, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. And after naming the feasts of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, he warns, None shall appear before me empty handed. Uh, it's as if the Lord is saying to me, Come and observe these feasts, but do not merely go through the motions in it. I'm, I'm watching, bring sacrifices to me. Do not come before me empty handed, but come before me to worship. And so the Lord is sovereign over Israel, and He will also hold them accountable. We certainly see this play out in the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures. The Lord was sovereign over Israel in a special way. They were accountable to Him in a special way under the Old Covenant. This has been emphasized. But I think we must also acknowledge that this is true of all nations and all people generally. This was, is true of all nations and all people generally. Was the Lord sovereign over Israel only? You should all say no. He is Lord of all creation. All will give an account to Him. So all people are also accountable to Him. Israel especially so under the Old Covenant. But in a general way, all people live under the sovereignty of God and will give an account before him. Now that I've made the general observation that this collection of civil laws serve to remind Israel of the Lord, of his supremacy over them, and of their especial responsibility to him as his consecrated people, let us now consider the laws themselves and ask what did these laws require of Old Covenant Israel? You know, this sermon and the last three have been a little different as we've considered this 
difficult portion of the book of Exodus. Can I just tell you, brothers and sisters, speaking kind of personally to you now, that I've been so blessed to hear so much positive feedback from this congregation concerning these sermons. Uh, I am blessed as a pastor to preach to a congregation who wants to consider the Word of God in this way, in this rather tedious way. Not all sermons will be like this, but I think it is necessary for us to do justice to this portion of Scripture by considering these laws carefully and seeking to apply them even to our own lives. So what did these laws require of Old Covenant Israel? What did they mean for them under the Old Covenant? Firstly, we will consider the first and last set of laws that have to do with Israel's responsibilities to honor God and to pay tribute to Him. Uh, They were to honor God. They were to pay special tribute to Him. And these laws are found in Exodus 22-28 and then again at the end of the passage at 23-13-19. Israel was to honor God. They were to pay special tribute to Him. 22-28 says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. The Hebrew word translated as revile means to slight or to treat in a light or trivial way. Israel was to honor God. They were to revere the Lord. They were to see Him as weighty and glorious. God was to loom large in their minds and in their hearts. And they were to live in light of this reality. As I have said, this whole collection of laws does seem to communicate that Israel was to do everything as a society, being mindful of God and of His supremacy over them. Next, the text says, "...nor curse a ruler of your people." Now, you might ask the question, what do these two things, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people, have to do with each other? What is the connection? Well, as I have said... This whole collection of laws does first require that honor be shown to God, and then that justice be upheld among men. Uh, The passage begins and ends with talk about the honor that is due to God, but in the center section of this passage, uh, it has to do with, with honor being shown to men, that justice be upheld amongst uh, the society there. And so I do believe that verse 28 of chapter 22 Uh, sets the stage for all of this. Uh, First, Israel is reminded, you shall not revile God. You shall not slight God. You should honor Him. You shall show Him the the reverence that He uh, deserves. And then the phrase that follows here, nor curse a ruler of your people, draws our attention to how men are to live in society together and the honor that they are to show one another. Uh, You will notice that this first verse functions as a heading over this entire section, and that this first verse does also correspond to the two sections of the Ten Commandments. What does the first commandment and the first table of the law require, brothers and sisters? Think of it. What does the first commandment of the Ten Commandments and the first table of the law require? It requires that God be honored. And what does the fifth commandment and the second table of the law require? It requires that man be honored as man. And so you can see that the first commandment of this collection of civil laws sets the stage for uh, this first verse, rather. Um, This first command of this collection of civil laws sets the stage for what follows. Israel was to honor God as a society and they were to honor one another. 
These two concepts are summarized with the words, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. These two little phrases kind of have a way of saying it all in seed form. How are you to live in society? Do not revile God, do not curse a ruler of your people. The fifth of the Ten Commandments says, You shall honor your father and your mother. And we have learned that this requires us to preserve the honor and perform the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superior, inferiors, and equals. This includes showing honor to those who rule or govern. Israel was to show honor to the poor and vulnerable in their midst. Uh, This was emphasized strongly in the previous section of, of case laws. And now Israel is exhorted to have reverence for God and in doing so to have respect for those who rule. Israel was to have reverence for God and they were also to have respect for those who ruled over them. The Apostle Peter may have had this passage in mind when he wrote these words in 1 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone... Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is 1 Peter 2.17. I really want you to catch this, brothers and sisters. These laws that we are considering in Exodus, who are they given to? Well, covenant Israel, right? This is how they were to live within society. They were to, they were to have reverence for God, and they were to also show respect to those who ruled in their society, in, in that nation that God had uh, called into existence. Now, now, Peter, who is he writing to when he wrote 1 Peter 2.17, which I have just read? Who was he writing to? Not to the old covenant nation of Israel, not to Jews only, but to the new covenant people of God, to Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike. He's writing to the church, in other words. But he seems to have reached back into the Old Testament and to pick, he seems to have picked up this pattern, you see, from Exodus 22-28. And, and he alters it slightly to fit the New Covenant context. But listen again to what he says. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He's here referring to the emperor who ruled over the Roman Empire. So he's speaking to New Covenant Christians and he's saying, listen... These laws given to Old Covenant Israel do not belong to you as they belong to them, but the principles sure apply still. How are we to live in this world? How are we to live in society as we sojourn here awaiting the the return of Christ and the new heavens and new earth? Well, in general, in summary form, we are to honor everyone, love the brotherhood. We are to live with a constant fear or respect or reverence for God, we are to honor even those who rule over us. The words fear God and honor the emperor in Peter do seem to correspond to Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You know, brothers and sisters, it can be very easy for Christians to fall into the trap of thinking that because a ruler or governor does not act in an honorable way, that we are then justified in dishonoring them with our words. I want you to see 
that it is possible to disagree with an authority figure, perhaps even very strongly, while still showing honor to them. Do you hear me now? It is possible to disagree with an authority figure, perhaps very strongly, and to still show honor to them. It is even possible to resist an authority figure when justified, while still showing honor to them. When Peter commanded that the emperor be honored, he was not referring to an honorable man, but to a man who held a position of honor. Do you see the difference? The Roman emperors were not honorable people. Some were very, very wicked, very vile. Some even persecuted the church viciously. It's in that context that Peter wrote these words, Fear God and honor the emperor. And if we were to consider the history of Old Covenant Israel, we would see that those who ruled in Old Covenant Israel were not always honorable men. There were sometimes very great wicked men ruling over Old Covenant Israel. And still this law applied to them. You know what I'm driving at here, brothers and sisters. I'm speaking even to myself. It is so easy to become frustrated with what we see in our nation, with the immorality, with the injustice, with the corruption, with the perversion. I mean, we can talk about it, but we have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, that we live as Christians should live in this nation, that we show honor to those whom God has placed into positions of, of power and authority over us, you see. Our context is so different than the Roman context was in Peter's day. It's so different than the Jewish context, the Hebrew context under the Old Covenant. Our form of government is so, so different. All of that is true. Nevertheless, the principle applies. We're to live in this world as Christians, as people who possess a reverential fear of the Lord, and also as people who live in an honorable way. Do not allow yourselves to, to stoop down and to begin to live and to speak and to act in a dishonorable and ungodly way, reasoning within yourself, saying, yes, but our leaders are just so far gone. They deserve it. We need to check this, brothers and sisters. I think we need to rein it back in, in fact. As we live for the glory of God here in the society, we must live as people who bring glory and honor and praise to our, our God uh, through the way that we speak and the way we, that we act, even as it pertains to those who rule over us. You know, there is a passage in Acts 23 that is also instructive in this regard. There we read of the high priest Ananias commanding those who stood by to strike Paul on the mouth. Hmm. So here is this authority figure in the Jewish context there. Yes, it's a Roman context, but the high priest Ananias had a certain kind of authority amongst the Hebrews there. And here Paul is being terribly mistreated. He's being persecuted for his witness concerning Christ. And it is this man, Ananias, the high priest, who commands those who stood by to strike Paul on, on the mouth. He, he's being abused here. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. He had harsh words for this man. Are you sitting to judge me according to law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Revile? I think this is an allusion to Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. Would you revile God's high priest? And look at how Paul responded in the moment. 
He did not say, yes, I'll revile him because he's corrupt. Yes, I'll revile him because he's ungodly. He's wicked. He's mistreating me. He's opposed to the way, to the Christian way. He's opposed to God and and to his Christ. He did not say that. He backs off and he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What does Paul do here? He cites our passage. He cites Exodus 22:28, and he applies it to himself. Was Ananias an honorable man? We would say no, not in this moment. He was thoroughly opposed to the truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, is, he, he has his hands in the persecution of Christ's church. He is not an honorable man, but he held a position of honor. And Paul took that into an account. Paul repented in this context. He repented in this moment saying, I did not know. And then he applies this civil law given to Old Covenant Israel to his, own, to his own heart, to his own life in this moment. And so I think, brothers and sisters, we need to consider this. It is possible for us to disagree and even resist corrupt and oppressive authority figures in our day, but we must do so as Christians as godly men and women. And I am speaking to myself, brothers and sisters. We must not fall into the trap of cursing a ruler of our people. As we continue on now in our text, we see that the focus remains on Israel's obligations to God before turning its attention to Israel's obligation to uphold justice at the heart of this chiasm, the heart of this section 22, 29 through 30, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. Here is stated that Israel was to offer the firstborn of their sons and their herds to the Lord. The animals were to be sacrificed as an act of worship to the Lord. Their firstborn sons were to be substituted with an animal. And they were also represented through the service of the Levitical priests. Israel was also to give the first fruit of their orchards and fields to the Lord. And in this way, they were to honor the Lord. In this way, they were to demonstrate their dependence upon the Lord. Uh, We must remember that it was no small thing for an Israelite to offer up an animal as a sacrifice to the Lord or to give the first fruit of their produce. This cost them, you see. This This was... something that costs them monetarily. And yet this is what they were called to do. The animals and the produce were to be used in the worship of God and to sustain the priesthood and the same principle is present under the new covenant. Christians are to give willingly and cheerfully as an act of worship to the Lord for the maintenance of the worship of God, for the support of ministers and for the relief of poor in our midst. We are to live in this world fearing God and showing honor to all. And we have this obligation to worship the Lord and to worship the Lord even in our giving so that His kingdom might be advanced, so that His church might be built up and flourish. Uh, This principle is present even under the new covenant. Let us now look at 23.13 where we read, Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. So here idolatry is forbidden, and this corresponds to the second of the Ten Commandments. 23, 14 through 17, there we read, 
Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. This was commanded previously. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you sh- all your males shall appear before the Lord God. And so here the main feasts of the Lord were men- are mentioned. These feast days were added to the weekly Sabbath under the Old Covenant. They were special days for rest, for assembling together, and for worship. These feast days, as you know, are not binding upon us. Under the, under the New Covenant, the thing that remains is the weekly Sabbath. In 23:18 through 19, we find preliminary instructions concerning sacrifice. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The beast of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The sacrifices offered to the Lord, they were to be kept pure and they were to be treated as holy. Israel was not to offer the leftovers or the scraps to the Lord, but the first and the best. And never were they to allow the worship of God to be corrupted by the worship practices of the pagan nations around them. I can't do all of the work for you, brothers and sisters, to apply this to us today. But you can see the application, can't you? I've just said that this principle applies to us. We are to worship under the new covenant. We are to bring offerings to the Lord as as we give uh, to Him. We are not to give Him the scraps. We're not to give to Him the leftovers, but the first fruits we are to give to Him. And we are not to allow our worship practices, the practices that the Lord has commanded under the new covenant, to be corrupted by the pagan nations around us either. The church is to be kept pure and holy in its worship. We have a big problem with this in the modern church, brothers and sisters, where the church has been corrupted by the pagan nations around them. The things that God has commanded in worship are being neglected in churches. And when we attend these churches and see their worship, we say this seems to be much like the world. The worship seems to be very worldly, driven by things like entertainment. There is application for us here in this text, brothers and sisters, that we must draw out. I think this is the meaning of this strange little command, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The pagan nations would do this in their worship of false gods, believing that it would lead to blessings as it pertains to fertility. And so in context here, I think that is what this command is about. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk means you are to worship me as I have prescribed. You are To worship me and make no mention of false gods. You are to not allow the idolatrous practices of the nations around you to permeate and to influence the worship of Yahweh, you see. I think that is what is meant by that strange little text there. It's not immediately clear to us. I think it would have been very clear to Old Covenant Israel. So then you can see 
that the first and last parts of this passage have to do with Israel's responsibility to God in worship. And by the way, you can see in this passage how the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws which were given to Israel under the Old Covenant do overlap somewhat. They do overlap somewhat. I think these categories are very helpful, these distinctions. There is the moral law, there is the civil law, there's the ceremonial law. We can, we can categorize these laws in, into one into one section or another, and this is very helpful for us. But I have acknowledged, even in that sermon series on the, the Ten Commandments, that even in the Ten Commandments where God's moral law is summarized for us, there were some laws, some things about them uh, that were unique to Old Covenant Israel, some ceremonial things associated with the Sabbath day being on the seventh, now it is the first, and, and some things unique to Old Covenant Israel as a society too. And here you can see the overlap. These are civil laws. These laws given to Old Covenant Israel are telling Israel how they were to operate as a society. Here is what you are to do. Here is how you are to function. You are to, you're to have reverence for God. You are to honor the emperor. Um, but here also things are mentioned concerning the worship of Yahweh. And of course, laws pertaining to the worship of Yahweh are also categorized as ceremonial laws. And so there is overlap here. And here I am simply acknowledging that. Some of you who have studied these issues know why it is I'm making this emphasis. Secondly, now, let us consider the second and sixth set of laws that have to do with Israel's obligation to honor God in their work and in their eating. These laws are found in 2231 and then again in, in 2310 through 12. 2231 and 2310 through 12. 2231 now. I do appreciate your patience very much. This will all come together, brothers and sisters. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. As you know, brothers and sisters, many dietary restrictions were placed upon Israel under the Old Covenant. Here they are told not to eat the meat of animals killed by another animal. The Israelites were not to scrounge for their food. What is the reason given? They had been consecrated or set apart as holy unto the Lord. The Israelites were to trust God for provision. 23.10-11, a similar principle is found here. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Think about this command here. Imagine how difficult it would be to follow through on this commandment, to allow your fields to just rest on the seventh year and to not tend to them or harvest them. That, that Think, think of the financial impact upon Old Covenant Israel there. Think of the, the trust in God that it would require to follow through on this commandment. They were to do this with their fields, also their vineyards, their olive orchards. So we see that Israel was to be diligent for six years. They were to store up food from the harvest of those six years and then harvest nothing in the seventh. It was to be a year of rest. And you can see how this follows the pattern of the, the weekly Sabbath as well. Six days of work and a day of rest. It's rooted in the weekly Sabbath. 
And so in 23.12 we read, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, the alien, and the alien may be refreshed. I hope that you are able to see, brothers and sisters, that Israel was to honor God in their eating. They were to honor God in their working. They were to honor God in their rest. And can you see how these laws that we have so far considered, laws pertaining to worship, eating, work, and rest, functioned to keep the Lord and the honor of the Lord on the forefront of the minds of the people of Israel. These laws served that purpose. The the Lord was ever present before the Israelites as they lived within society. They were to remember Him in their worship. They were to remember Him in their eating. How often do you eat? You eat all the time. In your eating, they were to remember the Lord. They were to remember the Lord in their work. They were to remember the Lord in their rest. So this reverence that they had for God, this faithful dependence that they had upon Him was to permeate every aspect of life. Brothers and sisters, we are to live this way too. Do do you understand this? As a pastor, I do sometimes grow frustrated uh, with what I see amongst Christians, how Christians who are struggling with some sin or who need to grow in Christ in some way, they tend to, to look... to to other things, other than the things that have been prescribed in the Holy Scriptures, uh, as a solution to to their many problems. They they have complex problems, they think, that need complex answers and solutions. But one thing we must see is that the Lord has given us all that we need. We're to obey His commandments, and we're to live with a daily kind of intentionality. We're to live with, with thoughtfulness from day to day, and Lord's day to Lord's day. It's not complex, it's simple. But if we would only engage in these things and keep these commandments that God has given to us under the new covenant thoughtfully and from the heart, we would thrive, we would flourish spiritually. The trouble is, so many Christians neglect the things that God has given to us, and they look for their, the solutions to their problems elsewhere. It's, it's so sad to see. They starve to death, spiritually speaking. Israel was to to live in this way where they were to remember the Lord and honor Him. They were to have reverence for Him in the simple things of life. In their eating, in their drinking, in their working, in their resting. They were to be mindful of the Lord in all things. Under the New Covenant, we do have um, we do have Something similar uh, to, the, to the days of rest that were given to Old Covenant Israel. They had these festival days that were added on top of the weekly Sabbath uh, that they were to keep. Uh, we have uh, something similar in that a proportion of time is to be devoted to the pronounced worship of God as we rest. It is, it is the weekly Sabbath, brothers and sisters. It is the Lord's Day Sabbath. You will hear me speak of the Lord's Day Sabbath as long as I'm a minister here at this congregation because I think it is so crucial for us to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. To be very thoughtful and diligent in our keeping of the Sabbath day. To to worship together corporately but to devote the whole day to rest and to the worship of God. And I do know that some in this congregation are still tempted 
to just rush out of this place and to return to worldly things. By worldly, I do not mean sinful, but I mean common things. Don't do it. Settle down and devote this day to the rest and worship of God. Old Covenant Israel was to do it. They were to also honor other festival days. Still, this pattern remains. One day in seven is to be devoted to the Lord as a day peculiar, as a day unique and holy. It is the Lord's day. It is the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath. Now, thirdly, we, fall, we find laws demanding justice for all within society. These are found in 23, 1 through 3 and 23, 6 through 9. We'll move very quickly through them. As I've said, the first and last uh, two sections correspond to the remark in 22, 8. You shall not revile God. That is to say, take God lightly. And now we come to the heart of this section, which requires that honor be shown to men. And that was summarized with the words, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now look at 23.1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. That's so clear, it hardly needs any elaboration. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious, a false witness. 23.2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So uh, you, you can see how this would be tempting. If there's a great crowd of people and there is what we call peer pressure that is in force, you know, you may be tempted to fall in with them to do evil. Do not do it. Do not be a false witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. If someone is being treated in an unjust way by a great multitude of people, you're to have the courage to stand up to that injustice. 23.3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Isn't that interesting? In a lawsuit, you shall not be partial to the poor. Do not show favoritism to a poor. If you have a poor man who has wronged a rich man, do not show favoritism to the poor man. Do what is right. Do what is just. 23.6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. I think the opposite is being stated here you shall not mistreat the poor in a lawsuit. You shall not show favoritism to the rich. 23.7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. 23.8, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and it subverts the cause of those who are in, their, in the right. Uh, you, you, you do know how this works, right? When you want a case to go in a certain way, you might give some money to the judge so that he will rule in your favor. And God is saying to Israel, you shall have no part in this because that blinds the clear-sighted. It subverts the cause of justice. 23.9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, the Lord says to Israel, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do not forget what it was like to be a sojourner in Egypt. You wished when you were there that you were treated justly, but you were badly treated and oppressed in that place. Do not do the same to others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is the law, is the moral principle. So what is the thing being required in this series of laws? Is it not justice for all within society? Justice for all within society is what was required in these laws for Old Covenant Israel. These laws are clearly an elaboration of the ninth commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
If a wicked man decides to be a malicious witness, do not join in with him. If a large group of people decides to do evil by perverting justice, do not join with him, even if it requires you to stand all alone. Do not show favoritism to anyone, be it to a poor man or to a rich man. The Lord sees all. The Lord sees all. If false charges are made and the innocent and the righteous are killed, the Lord will hold the guilty accountable. The Lord does have a way of doing this, doesn't He? In this life, certainly at Judgment Day. Bribes are forbidden, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Justice was to be upheld even in the case of a foreigner within Israel. All of these things are to be applied within our society, uh, brothers and sisters. Justice is to be upheld here. Fourthly and lastly, we have a law requiring that personal enemies be treated justly. This law is found at the very heart of this collection of laws. 23, 4 through 5 reads, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So you can see then, That every excuse to treat a fellow human being poorly or in an unjust way is removed here in this passage. Some may reason saying, well I am powerful and they are weak, so I am permitted to take advantage of them. This just came to mind, may I? Philosophers throughout the history of the world have debated over what justice is. What is justice? What is right? And many philosophers, heathen philosophers, I say, came to this conclusion that justice is you doing whatever you can for your own benefit, you see. Justice is when the powerful take advantage of the weak. You look, some of you look at me like, what is that? It seems so foreign to us, but it's true. We have a different view of things, don't we? Because we are mindful of God, who is holy. We are mindful of the fact that all within society, all people are to be treated in a way that is right. We're not to take advantage of any, even if we are strong and have the opportunity to do so. Neither are the poor to take advantage of the rich. Neither are we to take advantage of foreigners. They also have a right to just treatment. You see, we're not even to consider the question, is this person an enemy of mine or do I like them? Even if they are a personal enemy of yours, even if you do not care for them or they do not care for you, if you see a neighbor in need whose whose donkey or ox is lying down under a heavy burden, even if they are your personal enemy, you're to help them. You're to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so all of these excuses were done away with in the civil laws which God gave to Israel at Sinai in the days of Moses. And what framed these laws, what necessitated and motivated the keeping of these laws concerning justice within Israel? The answer is this, God's existence did. His special relationship with Israel and Israel's special relationship with Him required them to treat one another justly for God Himself is perfectly holy, righteous and just. In other words, Israel was called to be holy as the Lord is holy in this regard. All of these laws pertaining to justice were framed by this this idea that the Lord is to be treated with reverence, that the Lord is to be honored, that tribute is to be paid to Him, that that Israel was to live being ever mindful of of the Lord's sovereignty over them and of their accountability to Him. You see, uh, this was to frame their entire existence even as they lived in society with one another. 
Now, I'd like to steer this sermon towards a conclusion now by asking the question, what do these civil laws require of us? Some suggestions for application have already been made. I've stated this clarification many times now, and I'm going to state it once more. We must remember the uniqueness of Old Covenant Israel. And as we do, we will be reminded that there is a sense in which these laws were for them and not for us. This is especially clear in the laws about worship. Israel was obligated to keep certain festival days and to offer up the firstborn of their flocks in worship, etc., in a way that we are not. There is application to be drawn from these laws, but these laws do not apply to us in the way they apply to them. These laws have fulfilled their purpose and have been taken away with the arrival of the Christ and with the passing away of the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New. The Old Covenant's gone, brothers and sisters. It is gone. And the laws which governed Israel under that Old Covenant, they're, they're gone. They're passed away. We must remember that Old Covenant Israel entered into a special covenantal relationship with Yahweh in the days of Moses, and these civil laws were given to them as a consecrated people. As I thought again about Israel's unique position before God under the Old Covenant, King David's prayer to God as recorded in 2 Samuel 7 came to mind. Listen carefully to King David's prayer. This happens later in the history of Israel. All of a sudden there's a king, first Saul, then David. And as God enters into a special covenant with David, David responds in prayer and says, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. So he acknowledges the utter uniqueness of God. There is none like you. And listen carefully. And there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So here David is acknowledging the utter uniqueness of God and also the utter uniqueness of the nation of Old Covenant Israel. They are to be His people forever, meaning for a very long period of time. I don't have the time to prove that point right now. You'll have to trust your pastor on this. For a very long period of time, that is, as the Old Covenant remains. But here David is reflecting upon Israel's utter uniqueness. So let us acknowledge yet again that there are some things in this collection of laws that were clearly unique to Old Covenant Israel. But at the same time, we should not forget that all people and all nations are in a common covenantal relationship with God and are therefore accountable to Him. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Israel was unique, yes. But all people, all nations are in a common covenantal relationship with God and therefore are accountable to Him. I will confess it and just say it straight out, brothers and sisters. I do have that theonomic air in mind that I sometimes make mention of. I'm trying to handle these civil laws with precision here so that we do not fall into that theonomic air that I've made mention of previously. What covenantal relationship am I referring to as I refer to this common covenantal relationship? Well, of course, we are all born into Adam and into that broken covenant of works that God made with Adam in the beginning. That covenant no longer offers life, but its curses are upon all humanity because of Adam's rebellion. But here, I am especially referring to the covenant which God made with all creation in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah. Was Israel in covenant with God? Yes. Old covenant, Mosaic covenant, special covenant, unique to them. Does that mean that all other nations who have ever existed on planet earth have nothing to do with God? No. All people and all nations 
are in a covenantal relationship to God and are therefore under His sovereignty and are accountable to Him. We must remember this. Here I am referring to the covenant that God made with all of creation in the days of Noah. When we think of the covenant that God made with all of creation in the days of Noah, we typically remember the rainbow. We remember the ark and the animals and the rainbow. And isn't that rainbow wonderful? There we remember the promise of God never to flood the whole earth again. But there is more to this covenant than that. We should remember that God also commanded the descendants of Noah. Who were the descendants of Noah? By the way, who descended from Noah? Tell me. All humanity. He was a kind of, if I may use this phrase, second Adam. Christ is the second Adam. But you know what I mean. It was a new creation that came out of the flood. Kind of a, a new humanity brought forth in a way, not in the way that Christ brought a new creation and a new humanity, but it was like a prototype of that, etc. I'll stop. But you, you see, all humanity descended from Noah, all nations descended from Noah, and this covenant that God transacted in the days of Noah was transacted not with Noah, not with a peculiar or a particular nation, like the old covenant was, but with all of the peoples of the earth, with all of creation, with all humanity, with all of the nations of the earth. And, and there were certain things communicated in that covenant that are very important for us to, to recognize. In brief, all of humanity was commanded in the days of Noah and in that covenant to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. That should sound familiar to you. All of humanity was also commanded to exercise dominion over the earth. All of humanity and all nations were also commanded to uphold justice on earth. You see, um, this commission was not given to a particular nation, but to all who descended from Noah, namely all people and all nations. When I say that Israel was to be mindful of their relationship to God, His sovereignty over them, and their accountability to Him, as they sought to uphold justice in society, I do not mean to suggest that they were utterly unique in this. Yes, they were special. Yes, they were consecrated. Yes, they were unique in this sense. God entered into a special covenant with them alone. But it... But it is not as if Yahweh was Israel's God only, that He was sovereign over them alone, and that they alone were accountable to Him. No, instead we must confess that the Lord, Yahweh, is Lord of all creation. All men and all nations come from Him and will return to Him. All are under His sovereign authority. All will give an account to Him. All of this was made explicitly clear in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and especially in that covenant that God transacted with humanity in the days of Noah. Before God set Abram apart, He did this with Noah. And what did God command humanity to do under the Noahic covenant? Humanity would divide into societies and nations. And these nations were to be concerned with filling the earth, filling the earth with their descendants. They were to be concerned, therefore, with things like marriage and family and procreation in that context. Was marriage, family, and procreation only to be upheld within Old Covenant Israel, but the heathens could do whatever they want? That's what I'm asking right now. I say, no. All nations stand before God and under His authority and have this obligation to fill the earth. 
and to be mindful of God's commands regarding this. They were to be concerned with filling the earth through marriage and family. They were to exercise, they are to exercise careful dominion over the earth also. All nations and all peoples are also tasked with upholding justice within their societies. And here I am saying that all nations must be mindful of God, of their obligations before Him and their accountability to Him. You know, I do wish that all men and women would come to know the one true God, the God of creation and the God of scriptures, the God of the scriptures, through faith in Jesus the Messiah. Indeed, this ought to be our leading concern and highest aim. Indeed, this is the mission of the church, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to baptize and teach. Do not forget that, brothers and sisters. Do not lose that focus. But as it pertains to our society and to our life here in this world, I do also pray that men and women would be mindful of the God of creation and of the standard of His moral law as revealed in nature and ever more clearly in Holy Scripture. Justice for all in our nation is required. It requires this. And apart from God and His moral law, there will be no justice, only survival of the fittest, where those who are strong oppress those who are weak. Do you understand this? If we are to forget God as a nation, if we are to forget His moral law as revealed in nature and in Scripture, we will devolve into a society where this principle of survival of the fittest prevails. We will not have justice rooted in God's moral law or in His morality, in His holiness. And so we must urge our neighbors, even if they do not believe upon Christ, to live being mindful of God. As we work within society to uphold justice, we must remind people of God and of His sovereignty over us, our accountability to Him, and of His moral law, which is accessible to all according to the Scriptures, according to Romans chapters 1 and 2. Do you remember the Pledge of Allegiance, brothers and sisters? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Do you wish to know why there is such injustice, oppression, and division in this land? This nation has forgotten that we live and move and have our being under God. A nation that is mindful of the Creator God and of His moral law will have an opportunity to enjoy things like unity, liberty, and justice. But where God and His moral law is disregarded by society, all manner of corruption, vileness, division, oppression, and injustice will ensue. You know, I hope I've been clear in these last few sermons that we have no desire to impose the Old Covenant Civil Law Code upon this nation. We do not have that desire. We do not wish to have a Christian nation in the sense that the Christian faith is actively promoted through the government or that conversions are coerced by the threat of violence from the state. You know that's happened in the history of the world. It's a bad idea. We do not wish to return to it. It is right that church and state be kept separate. But this does not mean that the state or the so-called secular realm is to operate as if independent from God. It is impossible for men and women or the societies in which we live, to operate independently from God. It is impossible. And where it is attempted, things will devolve into chaos, 
think of the Tower of Babel, you see. Uh, we'll make a name for ourselves. You see, God is our creator, He is our sustainer, He is our end. Denying or ignoring His existence changes none of this. And all who live with a disregard for God and His moral law will surely come to ruin. And you can see this playing out all around us in the lives of individuals, in the lives of families, within our society, broadly speaking. Where God is denied, dysfunction, division, death, and destruction are present. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Do you see the connection? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what is the, what is the product of this? They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So I have been, so we have here been reminded of Israel's uniqueness. I've also clarified that although Israel as a nation was in a special covenantal relationship with God, all people and all nations are in covenant with God and under His sovereign authority and accountable to Him. Lastly, I wish to remind you, church. I wish to remind you, church, that it is you and I who are in a special covenantal relationship with God today. Do not forget this. It is you and I, that is to say, all who have faith in Jesus the Messiah, who are in a special covenantal relationship with God today. Put it together in your minds, I am begging you. In old covenant times, all nations on earth we're in a common covenantal relationship with God under the Noahic covenant, yes? But there was one people set apart as peculiar, as consecrated, as holy. And they were set apart by a special covenant, that is to say the old Mosaic covenant, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And in the world today, all nations of the earth are in a covenantal relationship with God too. The, the Noahic covenant still remains. Have you seen a rainbow lately? Well, no, because it doesn't rain here, but they're, they're still present. So all of the nations of the earth are in this common covenantal relationship with God. But is there a group of people in a special covenantal relationship with God today, simultaneously? And if you say Israel, speaking of that ethnic people, you have not been paying attention here. Who is in a special covenantal relationship with God today? Church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles together. All who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. These are the true children of Abraham, the scriptures say. And as God's special, consecrated, holy people, what I am desiring to remind you of right now is that we have a special obligation to honor Him as the Sovereign Lord and to live our lives being mindful of the fact that we have a special kind of accountability before Him. We are members of the New Covenant. We are citizens of the Kingdom of Christ, which the New Covenant administers. It is we who are united to Christ by faith, who are in the special covenantal relationship with the Lord, and therefore a special obligation rests upon us, just as a special obligation rested upon Old Covenant Israel to honor the Lord as sovereign and supreme over them. Under the new covenant, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The middle wall of hostility has been broken down. It is those who have faith who are the true children of Abraham. 
and the true Israel of God. Do not forget this church. While all people and all nations are in common covenant with Yahweh and under His sovereignty and are accountable to Him, it is the church consisting of all who believe from amongst the Jews and the Gentiles who are in a special covenantal relationship with God today. Yahweh is Lord over all creation, but He is Lord over us especially so, you see. 1 Peter 2.9 You, speaking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter wrote that to the church the new covenant people of God. All men and nations are obligated to honor God, but we are obligated to honor Him in a special way, for He has redeemed us from bondage, freed us from sin, and rescued us from death by the blood of Christ the Messiah. As we pray and work for peace and justice in this land, may we never lose sight of our special identity and of our particular calling in this world as God's consecrated people. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. And we will go immediately to the observance of the Lord's Supper afterwards. Our Father in heaven, do help us as aliens and exiles here on earth, as foreigners, as sojourners, to live well in these two realms, as citizens here on earth in the United States of America in our context, but of, as citizens of heaven, more importantly. Father, help us to live well in this world, possessing this dual citizenship, O oh God. May we, may we honor you supremely. Now, Father, we do not feel at home in this world. And this seems to be increasingly the case. So help us, O oh God, to be devoted to you. Help us to show honor to all people, even to those who rule over us, as we seek the advancement of your holy and everlasting kingdom here on earth. Move us, O God, to proclaim the gospel. We pray, O God, that your kingdom would flourish. In Christ's name, amen.